B.J. Council. I view the world through the lens of having been followed by a white clerk as a child while shopping in a five and dime. I'm a retired police executive and own UN50, which gives guidance on surviving interactions with police. I'm Harmony Chavis, and I view the world through the lens of one of the most misunderstood and diverse generations in our nation's history. I'm a social worker and a believer of radical kindness and love as modalities of healing. My name is Andrew Council. I view the world through the lens of a generational camera phone. I wake up as a black male and go to bed as a black male. I am surviving this never-ending court case we commonly call life in the best way I know how. So welcome back to you and five O. Thank you for joining us again. Hope things are well. Everybody's being safe uh, during all these moments, especially in reference to the the, the pandemic and everything. So uh, as usual, we have guests, Dr. Charles Johnson, the director for the Department of History at North Carolina Central University, and we'll have him introduce himself in a few minutes. And he'll we're going to talk about uh, mass incarceration and the history of slavery through prisons. Um, but first, uh, we're missing one of our co-hosts tonight, Harmony Chavis. She's fine, but she wasn't able to join us tonight. So it's just going to be me and my favorite nephew. And again, let's just try it again. So why are you my favorite nephew? Because <laughs> I'm the only nephew. <laughs> exactly. I just love saying that. So how have you been? been doing good. Just trying to focus on mental clarity. I've been working out and doing some meditating um, outside, which is one of my favorite places to be. So just trying to center myself mentally. That's all. Cool. How's the job hunting going? I know you're winding down your college life. So how's that going for you? It's going good. I have a um, a call with one uh, with a recruiter on Wednesday. Um, it's like Wednesday, so everything's everything's working towards my good as it always is. Sometimes, hopefully, so um, in one way or another. But everything's good for so far. Good, good. Oh, and just update on the family and uh, window window world one out, and uh, so hopefully yeah. the old folks will have new windows by Christmas. So I'm excited about that. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> So what we're going to talk about tonight uh, with Dr. Charles Johnson from North Carolina Central uh, is about um, the other part of slavery that we don't think about as it relates to policing and black bodies in prison. So I want to I want to let him kind of he's going to lead the conversation. But first, Dr. Johnson, thanks for joining us. And also, before I get too far, I also want to make sure everybody that our first podcast when we talked about slave patrols. We were able to do that because uh, Dr. Johnson is doing a little bit of the, the research for us and made it easy. So all we had to do was read. He did the research. So I just want to thank you again, Dr. Johnson, for uh, doing that. Um, that's probably the one of the – our first podcast, I think, has been downloaded more than the other ones. Uh, people were really interested in, in that particular con- conversation as related to slave patrols and how that evolved in and how it plays into the role of, of, of policing uh, as we know it today. So uh, thank you for doing that and, and helping us kick off our UN5O podcast with that, with that research. So Dr. Johnson, introduce yourself and uh, welcome. Thank you for, for being here with us. Glad to be here, BJ. Appreciate that. Yeah. And, uh, Andrew, I'm looking forward to the conversation that we have this evening. Uh, I'm the director of the public history program at North Carolina Central University. And 
uh, as part of what I do, I teach undergraduates United States history. And as uh, part of my responsibility there is to help the students to understand, I, as I see it, uh, how history helps to shape where we are today. Right. And that relates directly to, to what we want to talk about uh, this evening. Um, so I figured what we can do is, is have a conversation. I know you guys have done some homework and so forth. So we can start wherever you, you all want to start with that. Um, and I'll try to uh, do my best to rise to the level of uh, <laughs> your expectations. Okay. All right. That sounds good. But, oh, before we go too far, I also want to just say to Dr. Johnson that and I want you to talk about it just a little bit because you're doing history, too, that you and some of your colleagues are doing because you interviewed my parents, um, Black Farmers, which is a culture. Oh, sure. Okay. So, yeah, so I want to kind of highlight I'll, I'll that. Yeah, yeah that, highlight that, that. That's something that's coming, and hopefully after the pandemic, you guys will have, you know, a space that we can go visit that. But I, I definitely want you to at least talk about that and how that's going before we go into to this piece. Okay, so um, a, a little more about myself. So I was born and raised in Durham, North Carolina. I was born in Lincoln Hospital, which is the African-American hospital in Durham. Mm -hmm. And I had an opportunity to come back to North Carolina Central in 2015. Um, very fortunate to be able to do that. And the Durham that I returned to was a lot different than the Durham that I left. And, you know, change is inevitable to, to some extent, but the change that has taken place in the black community in Durham and truthfully across the state has just been uh, remarkable in, in many ways. So uh, as a director of public history, public history is a history that is community facing. Oftentimes when historians set out to answer questions about history, it's questions that they want to research themselves for whatever reasons they have for wanting to research them. Uh, as a public historian, oftentimes our research questions come from the community. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the case here. So uh, when I first got back, I was uh, already had in my heart that I wanted to explore blacks in North Carolina, kind of at a local level. Mm -hmm. uh, the grassroots level, we call that social history when we're looking instead of like the big people, that's political history. When we're mm -hmm. just uh, looking at the everyday people like our folks, um, you know, that's social history. And uh, one of the ways that I wanted to do that was looking at the agriculture because just about everybody could come off the farm. Mm -hmm. uh, and looking at African-Americans in agriculture because so much of Agricultural business today is controlled by major corporations. Uh, that's for whites and blacks, truthfully. Yes. Um, but that component of the African-American contribution is something that we didn't want to lose. And there had been work, some work that had already been, had been done on that, uh, but we felt like it was necessary. There was so much more to be explored. Mm -hmm. um, and having been contacted by a number of people, we just jumped into that and I worked with Arwen Smallwood, who's the chair of the Department of History at North Carolina A&T State University up in Greensboro, and Earl Imes, who is the uh, African-American curator for the North Carolina Museum of History uh, on that. And my role in that was to go out and get interviews from uh, some of our elders who had, who had 
you know, work the land and that kind of thing. And that's how your folks uh, got on the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, on my radar. Thanks to you. Very grateful for that. Very lovely parents. Um, but they told a story and I'm not going to go into it in detail, right. but they told a story very similar to, you know, to their peers across mm-hmm. the state. And mm-hmm. we're looking forward to that becoming an exhibit in the North Carolina Museum of History. And if this COVID thing persists, uh, then maybe it'll become an online exhibit or oh, something wow. like that. But we're, but we're definitely going to get that get that to the public because it's important. And just real quickly, BJ, while I'm on that, my other work uh, has also focused on uh, the place of African-Americans in, in local communities like Durham that has such a special, special history. So my background is actually a photograph of the leaders of North Carolina uh, Mutual Oh, wow. uh, life insurance company from 1925. And I can name at least, excuse me, I can name this half. I'm not going to go into <laughs> it right now, but, um, you know, but it's, it's about trying to preserve that history too. Uh, many of our communities that have uh, incredible histories are gentrifying really, really fast. And, <clears throat> and it's, um, it, it people are not when you move into a new community you're not really thinking about your first thought isn't like who was here before me mm-hmm. so it's just a natural kind of thing you know that you're trying to adapt to the new location and so forth but there really is there's an, oftentimes a really important and impressive history that's there before uh, and we're trying to help to preserve that so that's another project that's really dear to my heart and um, I've had a lot of support in the community uh, working on that Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to continue, you know, continue to do that. And then the last thing I'll just say is I really appreciate uh, you bringing, um, you know, you and 5 to North Carolina Central University to talk to students. Your visits have been, I think, really, really beneficial to the students. I think it's really helped to open their eyes to the fact that law enforcement officers are human beings too, right? <laughs> and not infallible and all of that kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, uh, I just think in many, many ways it's been beneficial. So I look forward to us continuing to do that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I enjoyed coming there and I, I, I would love to, to, to continue that relationship, definitely. So, you know, I think this is a good segue because you're talking about farmers and you're the history of black farmers. And so, that kind of goes, I think, maybe we're going to try to seg that, segue that into when slavery ended for white farmers, uh, that kind of ended their labor. So, you know, going from not having people to work the farm and making their money, they lost their labor. And so in comes this thing of, I believe what I'm reading is black codes, making up laws that they don't apply to white folks and then they get them mm-hmm. into the system. So can you kind of take us from when slavery Yeah, so, because, so yeah. let's talk a little bit about, I'll be, I am apologize, I'll, I'll be glad to. Let's talk a little bit, uh, just a little bit about slavery, right? Okay. Um, and what and what precedes it so that, so that to contextualize things, okay. right? So the North and South develop kind of differently. This is, this is kind of a uh, what is the uh, the little cliff notes or whatever on, on U.S. history, this early part, right? Right. So 1607, you have settlers settled in Virginia. 1622, you have settlers settled in what's the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Wow. Those two 
colonies grow into different regions and they grow very, uh, very differently. And in the South, the South in the United States became a system that was really, that came especially in the, in the latter part of the 18th century and into the 19th century, really driven by slavery. Mm-hmm. So um, skipping ahead to, to the 1790s, you have um, an enslaved man named Sam, whose father uh, helped to develop a comb that removed the cotton seeds from short staple cotton. And short staple cotton, the great benefit of it is it would grow almost anywhere. Um, So with this comb, you had the ability now to be much more efficient in that that removal. Eli Whitney, who came to uh, the South, got hold of this comb and mechanized it, and he created from this comb what we know today as the cotton gin, Mm -hmm. or the, the full name is the cotton engine. Right. Okay. So that was the efficient removal of those seeds from cotton. So now the productive capacity for cotton expands exponentially. And as a consequence, cotton production throughout the South, beginning in the upper South and then moving into the to the deep South, really takes off. So at this time, the majority of African Americans are in the state of Virginia. And that's where, uh, you know, we were enslaved. John Hope Franklin says ground zero was probably Dinwiddie, Virginia, if you tried to measure kind of the weight of, you know, um, the population and so forth. So that was ground zero for it. Um, But what happens is we have literally one of the largest mass migrations and internal migrations in human history. And you have uh, African-Americans who are sold into the Deep South now throughout much of the 19th century to grow cotton, Mm. okay? And that spreads, again, so we can get to, you know, where we want to get to, um, that spreads throughout the South from Virginia. And there was a reason that people wanted to get, um, and I should speak to that a little bit. Enslaved people um, cost a lot of money. So approximately 13 14% 14% of, of, of whites could afford enslaved people. Mm. So the vast majority did not own them economically, even though all of them stood to benefit from the social status that they had that privileged them for having white skin, right? right. All right, so uh, people had to pay for enslaved people like you buy a car. So there was, you paid uh, notes, you know, regular notes on that enslaved property. Well, in the Upper South, what we call the Upper South in Virginia and North Carolina to some extent, uh, tobacco prices for cotton had, I mean, excuse me, um, tobacco prices had dropped um, because of overproduction of tobacco. So people were looking for reasons to get out from under the debt that they had, you know, that they owed to the banks for that enslaved property. And that's who they were paying. And so you will know those banks didn't just sit on that debt. They did just like they do today. They bundled that that debt right into securities, and then they sold it on the international market. And in this way, you know, slavery came to benefit multiple layers, not just in growing tobacco or cotton or whatever, but the financial investment that they represented 
uh, also was used uh, on the financial markets. And that's important as we get ready to talk about um, convict leasing and the PNH system and, uh, and so forth. So um, by 1860, the production of cotton increased each decade until the United States came to control some 66, 67% of the world's production of cotton. And you think about what we use wow. cotton for. It's in yeah. every day. Yes. Right. Yeah. So that's coming out of the, you know, out of the South. And you had uh, almost a million African-Americans who were taken from Virginia and North and then North Carolina and so forth and sold into South Carolina and Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and in all the way into into East Texas. Wow. Um, wow. So <clears throat> this is sort of the background. And what you have developed is one of the most uh, wealthy aristocracies in the world. So uh, even at its founding, uh, its beginnings in 1607, you had a small group of, people, of, of whites, technically speaking, of people who define themselves as white, uh, who controlled the vast majority of the land. Mm. And they stood the most to benefit from that. And that same system remained for the most part in place down to the period of the Civil War, such that by the time we enter into the, to, to the Civil War, now you have some 4 million enslaved people who represented literally as a single instrument, the most valuable uh, commodity, if you will, to the Southern economy, okay? So what happens in the Civil War without getting into that too deeply, but it's important to understand also is that the South makes the decision that it wants to separate from the North, uh, to break away from the Union so it can continue its economy as it had in the past and its way of life in the past. And the, the core issue was this issue of slavery. Right, and we talk about states' rights, and states' rights were important to the South. That is, that's true. That is no question about that. But at the heart of this whole matter was this economic piece. Uh, so uh, the South breaks away, and the Civil War ends up being the bloodiest war that this nation has fought. And to truly understand this nation, you really have to understand this war. Uh, and the uh, the Confederates. Uh, the, the men that made up the different units of the Confederate Army fought with tremendous pride, but they fought <clears throat> a war that was taking place in their own hometowns, on their own fields, that was against an, uh, an opponent who had mass production so far beyond anything that they had, uh, and who had a much larger population. Um, but for the tenacity um, of many of its generals, that war probably would have ended um, before. Um, but I, I think it's important to understand that there was a deep sense of pride that they fought with. And in the end, they lost. And if I was teaching this course, I would, as a course, I would talk about Sherman going through the South and how he punished the South when he went through. I mean, he, you know, everywhere he went through Georgia, most folks know about 
him, you know, burning from Atlanta to, to Georgia, his, uh, his, his, his generals doing that. But he turned into South Carolina, and when he had done in Georgia, he redoubled in South Carolina. Then he came mm-hmm. up through North Carolina, and not to the same extent as Georgia and South Carolina, but they let the North Carolinians have it also. Well, the Southerners felt some kind of way, as you can imagine, about that. So at the end of the Civil War, at Emancipation, 1865, we're not going to deal with the 1863 the Emancipation Proclamation here, but 1865 now, at the end of the Civil War, when African Americans are truly for the first time potentially free, you have a white South that is lays in absolute ruin. It's, um, there's probably not a cotton gin that you can find that's operable, uh, very few. Um, many of the farms had been, uh, had been destroyed. The cities had been destroyed. Rail lines had been pulled up. Wow. So uh, white Southerners, especially the aristocracy, everybody's looking at their own interests uh, in this, is trying to figure out how do we rebuild the South? And at the same time, uh, how do we rebuild the social order in the South, right? Because now, 1865, your form of property, and, under, and it must be understood that, that that's what African Americans were, right? There was a, think about this, there was a dollar value placed on a human life, right? And for most of us, you, you can't even consciously think of that. You know, you, you're trained as a law enforcement officer to give up your life to save a life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, there's no dollar, you know, you, you doing some equation in your head about that. Um, but when you put that dollar value on a person's life, you reduce the value of that life in many ways. Right. Um, and because they were considered chattel, meaning traded with livestock and tools and, and so forth and treated as beast of burden, uh, there was a real sense that um, a, the, the old social order had to be reestablished. Right. You know, so you have white Southerners now who are, African-Americans are looking them out of out, 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 you know, and that could not, they couldn't stomach that, uh, many of them. That was some, some literally left the, uh, left the South and went to the, went West. You know, to, to, to get away from that. So we wow. finished, we entered the Reconstruction period, and it's during that period that um, African Americans, for the first time, really ought to even begin to taste what it would be like to truly have rights as, a, as an American citizen. And that's a very short lived period from uh, just the post emancipation to about 18, 1877. But even before that ends, Whites begin to elaborate, as you mentioned, uh, laws, literally, to circumscribe black life. And what they found that they could do in the South is that they could recreate the institution of slavery um, using the penal system. So if you look at the 13th Amendment, it has that simple statement that says that you know, it, it essentially says that it outlaws slavery, except in the case where someone has uh, been convicted of a crime. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that little loophole, uh, white Southerners um, who had a mind to do so um, opened up Pandora's box and 
what we get from that is a system that would spread throughout the South that returned African-Americans to hard labor. But as uh, in this system, it was, it was different. And it took a little time for them to realize the, profit, the potential profitability of this system. Um, it took time for states to realize it uh, and then for individuals to really realize how profitable this could be. Um, but once they did, they really latched hold of it. So then it became a matter of creating laws, mm. uh, what we call pig laws, that uh, essentially criminalized black life as a way of creating now a pool of laborers, um, a recapturing the African-American labor that had been lost uh, as a consequence of the outcome of, uh, of the Civil War. Uh, and the details of this were, there were, there were many different ways that, that this could happen. I mean, um, it, is a, it is a fact that in the Deep South, you know, any white man just about was deputized to stop an African-American and ask them questions if they thought uh, had any cause to do so, because they understood that the weight of the law would be on their side. Um, so you had situations where people would uh, make a false claim against an African-American uh, and say, you know, that this person owed me money. And then they take that person before a magistrate and that magistrate would say, well, you know, this person says that you owe money and you couldn't prove otherwise. Uh, so then they hit you with all sorts of fees. And what would happen is you would be taken to another party, someone now who needs your labor, and they would pay those fees and you would be forced to sign a contract agreeing to work for a given amount of time, let's say six months, 10 months, a year, what have you. Uh, and then you would be put to work in any number of different, uh, in any number of different ways. And most often we did not, we could not interpret those contracts. Uh, oftentimes they did not honor those contracts. You just worked and worked and worked. So you had this hostile South now that had this way of, um, again, recapturing African-American labor and, uh, and setting them to work. I've said quite a bit uh, without giving you a chance to ask questions uh, or anything. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here just for a moment, uh, just in case you or Andrew have questions about what, I, what I've said to this point. No, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here just kind of, kind of doing like a Drew, he usually says, I'm just absorbing all of this because this is really good information. I mean, it's history. And I think, uh, and I think without, you know, I hate getting political. I mean, people don't want us to know about this history, you know, and where, mm -hmm. where, where this is. And it's important that we understand that, especially to help the impact that it's, that it's having now, you know, as we start moving forward with, um, you know, the, the system, the social, the, the justice system, how it does, it's not really fair to, to black bodies because, it, and I'm sure you've heard this, the system is working the way the system was built to work. And so we got to right. figure, you know, figure out how, how to do that. I think, you know, as I was reading, you know, these things, uh, your, what you were saying, and, and I'm looking at the stuff that's going on currently, Dr. Johnson, I'm going, looking at some of the states are still have men, have, have labor that they don't, that prisoners have to do labor that they're not getting paid for. And if they do, it's like 14 cents or something like that. And so it's, it's kind of the same thing is still 
kind of going on in a way. And it is, you know, and um, it is, BJ, and and we can let's let's talk about that some too. But I want to I want to kind of tie off what I was saying um, just a moment ago because. The system, this system of convict leasing and uh, peonage throughout the Deep South would end up involving over 800,000 people directly. The vast majority of them were uh, men, even though some were women, very few women. Um, perhaps 10% or less were women. Um, almost a third of them were boys under the age of 16. Wow. Uh, so. Uh, you have to let's talk a little bit about some of the conditions just for the benefit of the audience so that they can understand kind of what these folks were uh, were being forced to do. Uh, so the industries at this time, you had, uh, again, we're rebuilding the South. Um, and the industries in this time, let's take if we, if we look at the state of Alabama, um, Birmingham comes into existence in the 1870s based upon uh, two uh, major rail lines coming together, and then the, uh, the discovery of uh, Truman Aldrich finds that there is a coal scene there, uh, what will become known as a Pratt scene, uh, and uh, iron ore. Uh, and then if you, you know, uh, smart enough, you can start making steel on top of that, right? So now you have this development, the industrialization, beginning of the industrialization now of the South, truly. Um, and it was African-American laborers that are, who are providing a labor for this, this system. So these people who were working as convict uh, laborers were going into those mines, let's say at three or four o'clock in the morning. And sometimes they were not coming out of those mines until eight, nine o'clock at night which meant they might go months without seeing, um, without seeing the sun. sun um, they, the, the, the temperatures in the mines could get, uh, could get really hot. Um, they were forced to, to drink the, um, there would be the sort of wastewater, if you will, at the bottom of the, uh, you know, the, of the mine where they were working and they would be forced to drink from that area. Um, it was the same area that they went, uh, that they uh, relieved themselves in. Um, there was all sorts of dangers in terms of possible explosion. It was mm -hmm. dangerous because of poisonous, ga poisonous gas and so forth. Um, you know, and then you had uh, other areas in uh, Florida and in uh, even here in North Carolina, especially here in North Carolina, you had the naval stores industry. Uh, and in the naval stores industry, um, uh, we were producing tar and pitch and uh, rosin. Um, it's used for any number of uh, purposes, uh, as well as turpentine, and that's taken from the longleaf pine trees. So uh, we were doing that work. We were draining swamps, mm. uh, just about anything that you could think of that would require, right. you know, real manual labor. We were working uh, in those in those industries. Um, but this, I, I mentioned the cost of enslaved people earlier because I want to emphasize that now the cost of a convict laborer is next to nothing. So you literally could work them to death 
And then all you had to do was go out, convict someone else, and bring them into the system. So uh, for in the 80-year period from the end of, um, end of the Civil War to about 1942, when the federal government finally, FDR, finally gets serious about stopping the peonage system uh, and ending convict leasing as it uh, was being abused in the Deep South. Uh, again, you have about uh, 800,000 people who mm. were directly involved with this. And for many scholars, for Rayford Logan, he called it the nadir for African-Americans. He said this period was worse than slavery was. Wow. Because blacks could be worked to death. Young people were taken and they disappeared and their families never saw them again, had no idea what happened to them. Um, you know, um, uh, Douglas Blackman calls it uh, slavery by another name. Um, mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so... And his argument is that this slavery just it it just continued in a new form all the way up to nineteen uh, up to nineteen nineteen forty two. Uh, so that's kind of you know the 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 background to to that. I mean that that brings us to nineteen to be very clear. That's bringing us to nineteen forty two now, wow. right? So this is the we're literally the World War Two period. You know, where we finally have, you know, you have a Pulitzer Prize winning historian saying this is finally when slavery really ends as we understood it in the United States. Wow. You know, so then so then it becomes a question is how does this inform the thinking of Americans about African-Americans? And uh, when you look at, think about what the impact was, right? So if you're out convicting African-Americans, you've created these pig laws and these vagrancy laws, right? And the vagrancy laws, um, they in many ways remind me of um, colonialism, like in, in Africa and other places where they were trying to force the Africans out of their own economies into the colonial economy, right? So mm -hmm. in, in, on the continent, what they would do whether they were the British or the French, it was the systems were different, but certain aspects were very similar. One was they would have a tax that you would have to pay and you'd have to pay in the colonial currency. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get that was to work for the, you know, for the colonizers. Well, um, in the Deep South, it was a similar kind of thing where the idea was uh, for you to really be working, you weren't going to be working on your own accord. You would be working for someone who was white. And that was, you know, and if you weren't, then you were susceptible to being, uh, you were seen as potentially being a burden on the state, right? Right. And that, that was the language that was spoken. So if you didn't have a job, then it was like, well, we need to arrest these people to put them to work because the state is having to take care of them. Do you understand? Oh, wow. So mm -hmm. this is kind of the, you see the idea, that's the logic behind It's kind of fiendish, if you will, uh, but there is a logic to that madness. Um, but those vagrancy laws would end up costing so many people uh, their futures, uh, many people even their lives. Uh, people uh, from the Deep South who experienced that oftentimes uh, did not talk about it. And it was, it was this convict leasing system and this peonage system, this second form of slavery, that gave rise to the um, great migration of African-Americans 
uh, into the different parts of the United States. So we're on the move again, right, from the continent of Africa to the Caribbean to the United States, from the upper south to the deep south, and now into the northeast, midwest, and far west, right? Mm -hmm. But we're now fleeing literally for our lives. Right. You know, I remember being taught in school about the job opportunities that came uh, because of World War One and World War Two and industry and blacks. No one talked about the hell that blacks were catching in the deep south and that they were literally running for their lives to get to these, you know, to these other places. Wow. Uh, so um, this period is a, is a really, really important one uh, in the nation's history. And it shapes so much of our thinking because as they began to report, you know, all of these crimes that are taking place that many of them are trumped up on their, their small minor offenses mm -hmm that have now been you know, penalized more heavily. We've seen right. that in our lifetime, right? yes. mm -hmm. you know, um, with the mandatory minimum sentences and mm -hmm. so forth yep. for, uh, you know, exactly for crack cocaine versus yep. powder cocaine and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Yep. Well, it was a similar kind of thing. You know, it wasn't that whites in the South weren't committing crimes. The focus was on the African-Americans, right? And punishing mm -hmm. the African-Americans and capturing their labor and putting them them back to work. But when people saw those statistics now, then that just reinforces a system. Mm -hmm. Because now you say, well, we need to do more. We got to beef up policing. Right. We need, you know, more law enforcement. We need more jails. We need more prisons. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, another aspect of this is how it shaped, and I think this really gets to the heart of the matter, how it has shaped the the psychology of Americans in thinking about African Americans and what they think of when they see a black face or a brown face, right? You know, what what is your first what is your first thought? And when you've had you know this period of slavery where uh, the at the time the arguments that African American people of African descent were naturally you know fit for this type of of abuse, basically. Uh, and then in the period that follows, it is, well, they're naturally criminals now. And we have all these statistics that seem to to, to show this, right? Right. Um, it's that that we're trying to overcome. And that is, that's the real challenge. It's at the heart, to me, of the matter. You know, let's assume people keep their logic up here and their beliefs kind of close to heart. And it's, that's the challenge that we have. It's why the legislation that we create doesn't have the impact that we desire because you can't legislate against the sentiment, right? You can create laws all day, right? But people will pursue and uphold those laws in as much as they reconcile well with their beliefs. And I know there are many people every day who go out and they do the right thing and God bless those people. But for many, there are those people who don't. And what they, their core beliefs are, that's what they end up going and doing. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. In the, the 14th Amendment, so to, to try to protect African Americans, <clears throat> if we go back to that Reconstruction period, you have uh, the Civil Rights Legislation of 1866, which literally gave African Americans uh, a almost all of the rights that we would take a hundred years, and as Lerone Bennett would say, and oceans of blood to get back to 
uh, in the mid-1960s with civil rights, civil rights legislation in that period. Um, but you had the 13th Amendment, which we've talked about, then you had the 14th Amendment, which gave African-Americans a citizenship, right? And it essentially said that, that you can't abridge it, that uh, African-Americans have the full protection uh, and the full weight of the Constitution behind them. But um, the authorities didn't use the 14th Amendment to protect African-Americans. Instead, if you go and look at um, how it was used, you'll find that it was used to protect corporations. Mm. So that's what I mean. It, it should have been used to protect the rights of African-Americans, but it was not. Okay. So, and we see that again and again, and there's so, there's so many uh, uh, examples that we can, we can point to um, that kind of speak to that issue of this is what the law says and what we ought to be doing, but mm -hmm. because people's beliefs and their, their, their heart is not in the right place, um, and it's not aligned with African-Americans fully as humans as everybody else, mm -hmm. then we have problems. The system breaks down. And that's what we see quite a bit um, today. And it's uh, sadly been, uh, it leaves us in really uh, many tragic circumstances. You know, so in this issue of policing is one that is not new. Um, I'm sure that you have probably talked about it on your, on your show uh, in the past, but if you go back and look at almost every major protest organization uh, in the 20th century, um, you know, from the Black Panthers, if we start even before them, um, uh, during the civil rights movement, the early civil rights movement, one of the main concerns was protecting African-American women from the sexual predations of white men in the, uh, in the South. And I, I can speak to that. Isabella Wilkerson does, I think, an excellent job of talking about that in The Warmth of Other Sons, and she talks about the Great Migration. Um, but as an extension of that, law enforcement in the South was used as a, as a means of controlling African-Americans. And it was uh, just like the patty rollers who would just, they were to, to, to instill fear in blacks to control them. Law enforcement began to take on this role, um, you know, in the South. And as a consequence of this, uh, many of the people that, it appears who were drawn to law enforcement came in already with an understanding understanding of what its heritage had been, the role that it had played in relationship to African Americans, and I have to speak of it that way, because um, the police don't police African Americans and white Americans the same. It's different, you know. I've had I've had my some of my friends who are white speak to this uh, even in their own experiences. They've observed it. You know, um, I'll give you just a real quick example of that. Um, excuse all these digressions, but I was talking to a gentleman who was uh, actually putting together a documentary on lynching that's taking place, uh, that was taking place in Chatham County. Mm -hmm. And he was with one of his best friends who just happened to be African-American. And 
he got pulled over by a police officer who was really giving this guy like a hard time. And he felt it was just like unnecessary the way he was talking to him and he was mm-hmm. talking down to him, kind of disparaging him. So at the end of it, the officer leaves and he's like, why the hell didn't you, you know, say something back? Why didn't you? Right. And he's like, because I can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't, I can't respond the way that, that you would respond. I've seen, I've seen white people get out of their car. I'm talking about with my own eyes right. and like start heading back to the law enforcement officer's car. Cause they're angry that they're being pulled over. Mm-hmm. There's not a black person who's conscious of what our relationship is to law enforcement that would ever think of, of doing that. Right. right. You right. are already fearful of yeah. what that relation and that speaks to what that relationship has been over time mm. and the role that it has played in terms of controlling mm. the black community and, and by extension, putting at ease the white community about the, you know, the black community. And it's funny because most black people aren't really thinking about the white community in that way. And black people are not thinking about revenge. If they were, it would have taken place a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, exactly. Most exactly. of us are just out here trying to live our lives. Yeah. Just trying to make it. Mm-hmm. Just trying to make it. Andrew, you got anything? I had a question. The one point that he made that was very powerful, Dr. Johnson, was your part about the psychology behind um, just like what we take in, I guess, with reading and then just the media in general and how I guess I never really considered um, the history about how the picture of what the black person looks like um, just in general um, and just thinking about it and how historically we have been shown this picture of, like you said, the, the comic leasing and things that go on um, just in it, um, throughout history and have that one picture kind of just shows throughout generations and, and it, it makes sense. Now it makes, I have a question too, but I won't. Um, but you can go ahead and make no, a no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Let, 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 let me let me respond to that, and then I'll, then you can ask your question, Andrew, if I can, and I'll be quick this time, BJ. <laughs> um, that's very important, Andrew. The uh, there are black psychologists that I, I I ask you to read, and and psychiatrists also, who look at the impact of white supremacy on our thinking about ourselves and uh, the wider community's thinking about um, about African-Americans and who we are, right? Um, it's interesting. Um, people who have historically defined themselves as, as white have not always been white. So we can look at the historical moment that whites became whites. Whites did not, uh, people who define themselves as white did not come here as whites, right? They came as Scots and not just Scots. They tell you proudly what part of Scotland they came, whether they were Highland Scots or Lowland Scots, you know, they are Campbells or they were Johnstons or they were uh, McDougals or whatever they were. And the same with the English. And if you had asked them what they were, they would, that's exactly how they would respond. And coincidentally, Africans did not come to the Americas initially either. It took time to create the idea of an African and it wasn't that people could not see difference, but they would have said, no, I'm, I'm Yoruba, right? I'm Bamileke, I'm um, Igbo or Ibibio or, or what have you, because that is where their culture was, was kept, right? But when we denuded those people of that culture to create the slave now, we changed both the way whites think about themselves, right? And how they think about African descended people and since we live in an atmosphere of ideas, now people of African descent 
also internalize those ideas and it shapes our thinking about ourselves, right? Yeah. So that's where it really, really becomes a problem. You see issues of self-hate uh, and, and so forth that run rampant in the African-American community, right? Black lives uh, do indeed have to matter, but they have to matter to black people too. Right. I mean, and and we but it's important to understand why oftentimes we don't value ourselves to the extent that we should. But it's a based upon this, the same, the same system. But read up on Francis Crest Wells and read up on um, um, uh, Naeem Akbar, read up on Thomas Parham, uh, read up on Amos Wilson. Those, uh, Reginald Jones, those are just some of the black psychologists who studied this for a long time. Uh, read up on, excuse me, wow, my own colleague, uh, Dr. Jonathan Livingston from uh, uh, a proud homeboy from Charlotte, North, North Carolina, who uh, can speak to this uh, as well. BJ, you might want to consider having him. He's a very dynamic, very sharp um, Sharp brother, you might want to consider having him on on your podcast as well to to talk about that very to talk about that very thing. Okay. okay. Andrew, what was your other question? What was yeah, Andrew? What was the other one? Go ahead. My other question was: I was reading an article about comic leasing just in general, and it says like the court records um, that were tied that were tied to the comic workers were usually destroyed, um, and and they weren't able to, I guess, like, like test their their case or like, whatever as you would say. Um, I had their sentences kind of just kept going i guess I, my question was in that sen- in that case where their their records were lost or destroyed quote unquote where they, they had to keep serving un- under the um the leasing that they were caused to, or quote unquote caused to have to be serving or what happened to them i guess if they were lost or destroyed yeah so those people who got called into that that's why the system was considered worse than slavery that's why i kind of started out by saying that an enslaved person uh, and they were they were brutalized in the in the deep south during that nineteenth century period. You know, um, they used a southwestern whip that uh, would bring blood. You know, uh, with almost every with every stroke, and that, that terrorized uh, you know African Americans. But there was still a value to uh, having that property. So there was reason to protect it, right? To keep it working. You would prefer to have it in the fields making you, making you money if you could, if you were a slaveholder. Um, but after that system, all of that changes now. And now, you know, uh, it's, you go from an enslaved person, let's say an enslaved man um, who is in the prime of his life, may have been, depending on the time period we're talking, you know, $1,800 uh, in, you know, let's say 1860, $1,850, which is a considerable amount of money. You know, uh, you just have a generation later and you, you're talking about $50 now to purchase a, a, you know, a convict labor. So you can see, I mean, the amount of money, it was uh, so significantly smaller that uh, you could just work those people, literally, uh, literally work them to death. And oftentimes those contracts weren't, you know, they weren't honored. Um, so people would work and then they would know. They, uh, oftentimes those convict, those people who had been convicted of crimes, even those who had been wrongfully convicted, they would know, you know, 10 months is up. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be uh, emancipated now. 
and you know they would be told no you know you the food that you've been eating or whatever it is you know you you owe us for that now and you know so then they'd extend it and extend it and extend it so yeah <clears throat> so you know that's that, yeah thanks that was a wow that's a lot um i would we need to kind of wrap it up, but what I want to, mm-hmm. I just kind of want to talk about just at least as when I was listening to you and I'm, I'm hearing about, you know, the black codes and the laws of vagrant. If you don't have a job, you know, you're going to work for us and you're indebted to us and all those kind of, kind of things. Mm-hmm. It just sounds so, and you, and the other thing about uh, the youth, you're saying, you know, these young kids would just disappear from, from their families and, and then be never seen again. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, you know, the, it just, it resonates with misdemeanor laws here, like vehicle laws uh, in, mm-hmm. in, the, in black communities where, you know, you're not making a living wage, but I, I'll stop you as a police officer and I'll give you a ticket for an expired registration or no insurance. Clearly, you're not making enough money to pay for that anyway. And now I'm going to put a ticket on you that's $125 that you clearly can't pay and eventually mm-hmm. all that's going to mount up and you know, then you may get a warrant and get arrested. So now you're in jail and it, mm-hmm. it almost, I mean, so it's like, it's ever evolving uh, that you're going to get in the system based on this, the fact that that's, that to me is small regulatory based on what you were just mm-hmm. talking about, you know, being homeless, sitting on the side. And a lot of agencies, I know Durham has done that, that vehicle regulatory issues is not a priority. She basically, from what I understand, that's, you know, you need more than that to just to pull somebody over. It has to be a little bit, instead of just co- compiling that. And then the other thing is statistically, the black youth that interact with law enforcement are the ages of 16 to 24. But they're mm-hmm. the but they're the smaller of the popu- of the U.S. population. So that when you said mm-hmm. the youth, then I mean it's it's almost like it's it's identical. It's it's happening as far as law enforcement interaction with the youth, and then back then they were doing youth as well. So you know it's just the way that this history is kind of going along the same path. It's the way that people think, BJ. BJ, it's the way that people think, right? And yeah. that's that's what shapes it. I'm I'm 55 now, and you know, I have gray hair and a gray beard and all of that, I, you know, and truthfully, I'm not, you know, uh, I honestly am not a, uh, a speeder, uh, most part, yeah. or whatever. But my interaction with law enforcement is, for the most part, is very, is very limited. Yeah. You know, compared to when I was a youngster, yeah. where it just seemed like all the time. I was, I was, you know, it was something that I was being stopped for. Yeah. And if I wasn't being stopped, I told you this before, you know, they get on your bumper and follow, follow you around and yeah. wait for you to not use your turn signal or something, you know, as a provocation. Right? Yeah. That kind of thing, you know, uh, so. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, and, and that's, you know, I think just to kind of wrap it up, that's kind of what, you know, why I do what I do, you know, and but just understanding the history as to we, uh, we did a, few podcasts back of uh, the poem the mask we wear by maya maya angelou uh and mm-hmm. the, the the fact that our ancestors were submissive in order to continue our the race you know to get through mm-hmm. that you know and and so for me mm-hmm. as we do this do this work it's it's basically to to, to save youth to save the future you know i need you to get through this interaction 
and and so you can you know be you know fruitful or you know be the person that that solves cancer or you know all that kind of stuff but it's you know so we don't have to like get into this system and then get into this penal system which is a revolving door and and then the mass incarcerations it's it's a whole we just try to figure out how to do that and 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 so I thank you for giving us this history because it, I mean, it, it, I really enjoyed this. Um, I did because I, I just, I think we forget about that and you just rattling it off um, just made me sit Yeah, we don't, we don't, we're not taught it. So I don't know that you forgot it or not. Many, no, many, we're, many yeah, we're not taught it. Yeah, we're not yeah. taught it. I mean, when we talked, when the information you gave us about the patrol, um, Andrew, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, Andrew, you, you said you had heard some of it, but you mm-hmm. really didn't. I mean, it's just not anything that, is that correct, Andrew? That's correct. They don't teach it. I, I, well, students at I know my institution have to take a specific course or courses um, in order to learn this information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I was telling my mother about it, uh, Dr. Johnson, and she, you know, kind of went back because she's old school. You know, she, she was mm-hmm. there, you know, when school, when the schools were segregated. And so mm-hmm. she said, so they would do the teachings in the school, but once they were integrated, that part of mm-hmm. history was cleaned up or they weren't able to go into it. So it, we, we kind of just kind of lost that. So anyway, so thank yeah, you. Well, it yeah. was, we were told that it promoted hostility. So you will know. Yeah. That was literally the language that uh, when we, you know, if we talked about what happened to us, then we were told that that, that, that promoted hostility. Wow. And yeah. uh, in that way, you know, we silenced the past. But yeah. BJ, I really appreciate you inviting me on. I've really enjoyed this and I uh, wish you much success with this in the future. Thank you so much. And I, and I really appreciate you, Dr. Johnson, for doing this and, and, and uh, also making my parents to, that will live on into infamy by being a part of your, uh, your history about black farmers. So we really appreciate you guys coming back and listening to us and listening to Dr. Johnson. Hopefully you've learned something, learned some history. We really appreciate you joining into you and 5 uh, Andrew, you got any parting words? Not necessarily. Thank you, Dr. John- Thank you, Dr. Johnson, for um, giving me the name of the um, – the psychologist and um, people to look up to do some readings about too. I'm going to do my own research. Very appreciative of Glad to make you acquaintance, Andrew, and, and much success to you in the future, brother. Thank you. All right. All right. So as always, we appreciate you listening to us and uh, be well and peace. <laughs>